Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. Hey everyone, it's Reed Galen from the Lincoln Project. And before we get to the show today, I just really want to urge everyone, if you're eligible, to get vaccinated for COVID-19. I got it done today. It takes about five minutes. They scheduled my follow-up appointment for my second shot, and I was in and out of the place in 20 minutes. You can't do more to keep yourself safe, to keep your family safe, and to keep everyone else in your community and your state safe. If you're looking for more information on how to get it done, go to vaccinefinder.org. Your local state or county health organizations have that information as well. But this is something that's easy to do. It's quick, it's safe, and it helps everybody. Thanks, and we'll get to the show. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm joined by legendary Democratic strategist Joe Trippi. Joe has been at the forefront of movement politics for nearly 40 years and has been called the man who reinvented campaigning. Joe's the host of the podcast, That Trippy Show, available on Apple Podcasts and wherever your fine podcasts are found. So, Joe, I just want to thank you for joining me today. Great to be with you, Reed. So just reading my notes here, obviously you have a, a long and distinguished career in, in American politics and overseas, but I want to really focus on the U.S. today, going back sure. to 1980. What, can it take me all the way back there? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes. To, to Teddy Kennedy. And so what was interesting as I was going through, you know, the roll call of your presidential campaigns was that, you know, you were never afraid of taking the person who was not the, you know, conventional choice in a lot of ways. And I know that Howard Dean, certainly in 2004, lives up to that. I think, um, you know, I do believe that if you're going to work in presidential politics, that the first book you must read and understand is What It Takes by Richard Ben yeah, Kramer, which I book. do believe even now, 30 some years on, is still, I believe, the quintessential book about American presidential campaigns. And, you know, it's a thousand pages, but every one of them is worth it. A large section dedicated to our current president, Joe Biden, of all things. But just to get on the Republican side of the aisle where I grew up, is that, you know, in 1988, George H.W. Bush did what it needed to do to beat Bob Dole, right? But probably wasn't going to do that in 1992. So you can have what it takes one year, but not necessarily have it the next. Yeah, it has a great title of the book, too, What It Takes. I mean, it's really what made it, I think, the classic that it is, is that it pretty much exemplifies what it takes to get somebody the entire way. It's a pretty tough thing to do. You know, I mean, I don't know if there's a, a more grinding political contest in the world or even in, in modern human history than a presidential campaign, especially now when, you know, these fields, as you know, if it was five or six, that was one thing. Now, you know, in 2016, it was what, 16 Republicans. There was at least a stage, stage and a half full of Democrats in 2020, because now it appears that, you know, and this is, I think, a good thing and a bad thing, probably, you know, like a 2008, right? A, a Barack Obama was ultimately a two-term president, but was a two-year senator. U.S. Senator when he ran and ultimately was nominated and won. Donald Trump had never run for elective office. So now folks are like, well, 
I might as well give it a shot. You <laughs> Everybody's know, I mean, giving it a shot. Rick Santorum, I mean, if you think about Rick Santorum, he has parlayed one very mediocre U.S. Senate term and two really piss poor presidential campaigns into a piss poor <laughs> job on CNN. So, you know, it has an upside for everybody, I guess. Well, that's true. It's become no real downside. Books, TV shows, whatever. But I tell everybody they don't understand how grueling a presidential campaign is, how intense it is, how the pressure, how no sleep, all that. I urge everybody to do it. And I tell everybody that at the end of that presidential campaign, if they got in there and whether it was going state to state or worked at headquarters, they're going to say at the end of it that it was the greatest experience they ever had in their lives. And the very next sentence out of their mouth is going to be, please, God, don't let me ever do that again. And unfortunately, <laughs> every four years, I forgot that don't let me ever do it again part and kept doing it. And yeah, you're right. Somebody's got a 28-point lead. They don't need me. They don't need any of us, really. But you know, I'm more get involved because of the challenge and because it's somebody I believe in. Or I think that we need to make a real change in my party, which has driven me a lot. But I did. I worked for Walter Mondale in 84. I mean, he was an establishment. And frankly, I was one of the two or three Kennedy guys that was let into the Mondale campaign because right, sure. they, they hated us. They thought we had cost them the loss to Reagan. Well, listen, I spent some time with John McCain in 2007. And as someone who worked for George W. Bush in 2000 and 2004, but especially in 2000, where I had been as an advance man in South Carolina for several weeks, I can promise you those folks never forgot that either. Yeah, I still pay for some of that stuff today. I mean, it still sticks with 40 years later, you know, I get turned down for a job because somebody said, oh, yeah, he was the guy who was working for Kennedy in 80. And Kennedy, not exactly what you'd call a foreign name in democratic politics, nor was he what you might call a non-establishment figure of in his own right, just as given his long Senate career. No, that's true. But he was, look, we're running against an incumbent president in your own party is pretty insurgent. It was an insurgent race. You know, I worked for Jerry Brown in 92. You know, Bill Clinton would win that nomination. But one of the other things that sort of motivated me the entire time, having grown up in Silicon Valley and been an aeronautical engineer in college, it was my major. I kept trying to figure out what was going to change people's lives more, technology or politics? You know, I'd still argue today the cell phone changed more people's lives than anybody I, I ever worked for. But I kept trying to merge those two things. I was really frustrated with how one-way television was and always trying to figure out some way to connect more with people, not through that one-way television box. So like in 92 with Brown, me and a guy named Joe Costello, the only way we could figure out in 1992 to make the TV a two-way mechanism was the 800 number, ask people, call in. That was, a you know, one of the first times that had ever been done. And, you know, Brown raised about $8 million that way. And I remember Brokaw in the middle of the NBC debate begging him to stop saying the number <laughs> every time he asked a question. <laughs> Brown would hey, answer listen, with... marketing, right? You got to be a salesman in this Yeah, team. we had him plugged in to do that. And, you know, that's what I'm saying. So a lot of this for me has been wrestling with how to change the party different ways and different times, but also how to change politics, how to get people more involved and engaged eventually got me to manage the Dean campaign, where I figured at that point, I knew most people in politics, at least back then, had no clue really about how powerful the technology was and would become. And on the other hand, the people in technology who understood what they were developing had no clue about politics. And I had straddled both worlds enough by that point 
I guess, to become dangerous enough to cook up the Dean campaign. So let me ask you, one, if you were smart enough and good enough at math to be an aeronautical engineer, why did you do this? Because you know (laughs) there's almost every other career that is an easier slog than this. And then two, again, I worked for Governor Bush, you know, going back to when I was in college in Austin, Texas, you know, in 1998 for his reelect and then on the 2000 campaign where we received faxes at the hotel, right? That's how we got the schedule. Even in 2003, when I joined the reelect in 2004, I mean, if you go back and you look at those archived web pages, you know, I mean, it's something out of another time, literally. And I remember that I was director of scheduling in advance. And so the field director came and said, hey, we've got these handheld doohickeys and they have this thing called wireless Internet at the rally sites. And we want to see if we can collect people's information, you know, while they're walking around. But like we couldn't get it to work, even when the political guys sort of took it upon themselves, they couldn't figure out how to make it happen. But the Dean campaign in 0304 really revolutionized, I think, the technology piece. What were you seeing then? Again, you grew up in Silicon Valley, so you were maybe witness front row seat to the technological revolution as it's developing. But how did you know? I mean, the Lincoln Project last year had a streaming service and we still have it. LPTV. We said, well, why not? We can do it in our living rooms. We had to do it in our living rooms because of COVID. But I mean, that was 16 years on from where you guys already had that idea where the technology would have been far more cumbersome to make that happen. Yeah, no, we had Dean TV. We were streaming and having people produce their own stuff and put it up on the channel. And it, you know, in one moment, there were 200,000 people, which for back then was a big number, 200,000 people on it watching whatever was going on or, or uploading stuff. Our only problem was that as soon as the campaign wasn't over, we didn't go to a bunch of VCs and say, hey, we've got, we want to launch this thing called YouTube. Right. Because uh, <laughs> that's what literally happened after. But what happened was after the 88 and 92 presidential campaigns, I still consulted on a race here and there. But a lot of my time was spent consulting for e commerce and actually cybersecurity. So I'd been doing that for about 10 years mixing it in with the politics of the campaigns I was working for. And then Howard called me and said he wanted me to run the campaign. And I really didn't want to unless we could do it different than anybody ever had. And then you have the vision, you know what you want to build. But we had things where like back then the lawyers actually said that they didn't think we could put up links on our website to other pages asking for money or something, because that would be an in-kind contribution. There's the FEC rules that were not prepared for what we were trying to do. And it would take me two weeks of fighting with lawyers to finally get the right links to the right sites up and things like that, or get the blog launched, the blog for America blog that we had. But we also attracted a ton of talent. Once you opened up that box people who really understood technology, you know, would quit their jobs at Google or whatever, you know, just leave and come to Vermont. And, you know, Nick O'Malley, who was the webmaster, was just a genius. It just attracted talent. It attracted new ideas. And we were open to it. And frankly, Dean was up for it. He didn't understand any of it. He had barely used email when we started the campaign, but he was go for it and supported us 100%. And once he realized what was happening and how it was really fueling the campaign, he really let us go. You know, even when Governor Dean sort of understood the power, the breadth of what you guys had in mind, 
I mean, it's all well and good. I mean, I said the same thing about, you know, when then Senator Obama was really making the most of Facebook at that point, which was Facebook was the tool. He was still Barack Obama. Right. I mean, if Howard Dean had not been a compelling figure, if you guys had not had a compelling message that was driving a lot of younger voters, a lot of different voters, you know, you wouldn't have had 200,000 people watching Dean TV. You would have had like 800. Yeah. Uh, most of them in greater the greater Burlington area. So how did you take a tool that you guys basically created and developed based on what you saw was possible and match it to something that made it compelling? Well, he was, you know, he was, I think, showed more courage in that campaign than very few candidates I've ever worked for. The positions he was taking against the war back then when, you know, I think in our polling, 80 percent of the American people at the time were for the war. And the same back then, he had signed the civil unions law in Vermont back when that was thought to be disqualifying, even the Democratic Party, it was thought to be disqualifying to have had that position to have signed that law. So he, like I said, he had a lot of courage and man, he had a message and was really good at delivering it. Energy gets energy. He would attract all these young people with lots of talent and energy. We'd give them the freedom to try new things. And that energy was really pretty contagious. It got us uh, to the forefront. We became the front runner, but then the entire establishment came with guns blazing and took us out. So let me ask you that, because, I mean, that's the one thing that we found last year when we started taking off, really about May of last year, was that we'd had an idea and we'd started to, you know, to cook up some content and we understood that there was going to have to be a different way to go after Trump because calling him all the names that he was used to being called just weren't going to be effective. That, that's what we loved most. It was that we didn't have a campaign. We didn't have a party. We didn't have a candidate. I mean, I make this joke. We got up every morning, got on the phone. We said, you know, what ad are we going to make today? And whoever had the worst idea, their ad got made. <laughs> um, now, sometimes that was true, but it was more true than it wasn't. But I think you're right, that freedom. And we, we as we grew and we had more financing and more options, we encouraged people to be entrepreneurial. They'd say, hey, we think this is effective. And we're like, well, all right, we'll go do it. If it works, we'll do more of it. Because I think also, and maybe this comes from your insurgency background, is that you're not expecting to win anyway. So if you lose or you make a mistake, like what was the worst you could do? Okay, we're, it didn't work. We'll do it again. Whereas, you know, being an establishment or a front runner, everything becomes the sort of Hippocratic oath. First, do no harm which I think is just stultifying beyond words. Right. Well, like from the outside, it looked like you guys were having fun and it was fun to watch what you were doing. And, and I'm sure you have a huge following of people who felt the same way. So, you know, that's part of, again, going back to the, the Dean campaign, we weren't stupid. We knew that the odds of us winning in the environment we were in with the positions he had taken, uh, he knew, but we were in it to win and we really were, but we had fun doing it. And then all of a sudden, one day you're the front runner and it's not fun anymore because they're all, and you guys have experienced that too, where everybody's gunning for you and going to come. And of course, in that, in 2004, yeah, the entire establishment in the Democratic Party came out to stop us. And to much to their chagrin, he became the party chairman at the end of the campaign because he was so popular with the grassroots. Well, and so let me ask you that, because the one thing you said at the beginning was that, you know, Governor Dean... And you all ran a great campaign, right? And you can run a great campaign and lose. Those things do happen. Shitty campaigns lose a lot, but that's just how it happens. And maybe they win. But you said you also wanted to figure out, you know, if you could use something like a Dean campaign to change the party. Do you feel like you can trace a lot of the progressive energy that the Democratic Party has now back to Governor Dean's campaign of 2004? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, absolutely. You look where the country is now. I mean, look where gay marriage is now. But that's mainstream now. 
now, now, back then, we were with the people in the Democratic Party said we were, you know, we couldn't nominate him because that would be disqualifying. He'd get his butt kicked. Maybe they were right about that. But I'm saying that the campaign moved the country forward in a lot of ways on the war on gay marriage. Obama clearly, I think, particularly in the early stages against Clinton, a lot of that early money that was coming into him online were people that had come to the fore with the Dean campaign and were excited about him. And look, in his second term, he comes out after Joe Biden for gay marriage uh, and then the the court happened. So Vice President Biden goes on Meet the Press and says he's for gay marriage. And then the president of the United States comes out the next week. Yeah. So that's what I'm saying. So uh, (laughs) Howard Dean was there way before those guys in the party. And so were most of the people on our campaign. You can get your butt kicked and move the country for the effort. But the reality is there's been something like, you know, 150 Democrats that have run for president since 1968, something like 150. And it grows every year now because like even on the Republican side with 16 people running. Yeah, the fields are so busy. In that time, out of that 150, Jimmy Carter, Bill Clinton, Barack Obama, and now Biden, four. Four of those 150 have become president of the United States. And I'll tell you, a lot of the 150 had crappy teams, but 70 of them... (laughs) had some really sharp people who were, it's the Super Bowl, they're there, they got drafted, and they're fighting for the presidency of the United States with the nomination, but only four guys won. And if you go back on your side, I actually think now with the last 16, back in uh, 2016, you've actually had more people run in that time. And you've got Bush, Bush, Trump, probably like something like 240 campaigns have been waged for president on both sides. And in that entire time, four on each side have won. It doesn't mean anything about the skill level and all that. It's a a lot to do with where the country's at. And again, some campaigns really are, even in the losing, have bigger impact on the party. I would say that uh, with Kennedy in 1980. He lost, but the number of people still in key positions in the party strategists, et cetera, you know, that stayed. A lot of the Carter Georgians went home after Carter lost. A lot of them were Kennedy people. McGovern was like that. If you look at the people that started in the McGovern campaign, man, did he get walloped. But Bill Clinton, Gary Hart, some of their first experiences in life, in the political life, were in the McGovern campaign. Just to your point about the campaigns that have an effect, again, going back to my experience in 2000, which is if John McCain doesn't beat George Bush in New Hampshire, George Bush might not be the candidate he was in the fall of 2000, right? He might have needed to have his rear end handed to him, and he'd probably tell you that. You know, he needed that wake-up call. I feel the same way, you know, in the fall of 2000 for that first debate between then-President Bush and Senator Kerry when Kerry wiped the stage with him. And, you know, sometimes these guys and and gals, you know, they're used to being told what they want to hear. And once in a while, life has to jump up and bite them to remind them that, you know, this is actually pretty hard work and you don't get to just walk into it. Yeah, no, that's true. But that's also part of the ups and downs of this thing. No one's going to get through a presidential campaign without getting knocked down to the mat. It just doesn't happen. The real reality is, do you get back up or not? And you're going to get knocked down. You're going to take the hit. So I think I've learned a lot more sometimes, I think, from the losses, whether it was for Senate or governor, than some of my wins. I think that's true. I think every losing campaign I've ever been on was far more instructional and helpful to how I saw the world, both politically and every other way, as compared to the ones you win, because 
well, I mean, as I got older and I got closer to the top of these things too, right? I mean, in 2000, I was an advanced man traipsing around the country, you know, and I got to see it, you know, firsthand, but I wasn't making any decisions other than like how high the stage is, right? You fast forward seven years and, you know, I'm deputy manager for John McCain. You're seeing it up close and you're living it personally. Uh, and you lose a palace coup and one day you're sitting at your desk and the next day you're booking a flight back to California about 18 months before you thought you would. So uh, they're very instructional. One of my favorite things was always talking to folks who were on their first campaigns and saying, you know, you you should think about this, not in the context of getting up and, you know, you work for somebody and they tell you, you got to go do this. And it's really boring. But as the opportunity to do something where you may be on a campaign that literally changes the world. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you do good. Even at the low echelon of a presidential campaign, man, are you going to get promoted? You're going to get moved fast. That's what happened to me in the Kennedy campaign. I started out as a $15 a day organizer in Iowa. By the next state, I was running half of Maine. And then I was state director of Arizona. And, you know, Kennedy only won like five states in 1980. Arizona was one of them. And that ain't one you would think Kennedy would win against Carter. But we pulled it off and that got me, you know, all of a sudden there were a lot of people in the Kennedy campaign saying, I want him to go to this place. I want him to go. So, you know, and that's $15 a day organizer, like four months earlier, you know? So that's why I tell people, you know, get involved. If you see somebody you believe in, regardless of party, go there and work for that person and do it for one presidential campaign. You'll learn a hell of a lot about the country. I love Iowa. Sure. All 99 counties. Yeah. Yeah. All 99. Um, of almost them. died in a blizzard on the way to Ottumwa. Like we all have that story, right? Yeah. Well, me, <laughs> I tell people that, and this really happened. I was from California. So I'm driving ice road and my car goes into a ditch in rural Iowa and it goes into this ditch and it's like freezing cold and it's snowing like crazy and blizzarding outside. And I, I walk up to the farmhouse right next to the ditch I'd rolled into <laughs> and I knock on the door and it's this, you know, farmer. And I, I tell him, and he says, he'll get his tractor and he'll pull me out the whole time. He's pulling me out and stuff. He's like, what are you doing here, son? You know, and we're talking. And at the end of it, he's like, you know, if Kennedy can attract a, a nice, good young man like you, I might just consider him. Well, now I'm figuring like, okay, how many more ditches can I drive in front in front, <laughs> and have the farmer? Until this anymore. Yeah, until the farmer, get another farmer to pull me out of the ditch and talk to him. But that's what I'm saying. You get real, you know, real insight into people. And, you know, that's one of the things that bothers me about the polarized times we're in, because I think the American people on both sides are a lot better than what we've watched over the last four or five, six years. That's what I really want to work on with whatever time I got left here. I want to ask one question going back to your piece about the establishment sort of they came for Governor Dean. You know, it was interesting that, you know, a year ago, just about the Democratic establishment or the Democratic field had to make a choice. Bernie had won. Biden had just won South Carolina. And I'd never seen anything like this where literally the entire field drops out and gets behind one guy. You know, I think COVID was coming on board. A, had you ever seen anything like that? And B, if they hadn't done that and they had continued to slog it out or Bernie had been nom the nominee, do you think Trump still would have lost? No, Trump, I think, would have beaten most of the people in that field. I always believed from the get-go that Biden was who the party would turn to. I kept saying it over and over and people thought I was crazy. This is back when he had no money and you know, Bernie was really rolling or Elizabeth was on a roll or, you know, Kamala got him in the debate. But my experience from California in 2010, Jerry Brown against Meg Whitman, 
after Arnold, you know, sort of celebrity governor. And it's not fair comparison because Arnold's not Trump, and that's not what I mean. No, I got you. No, and I worked for Arnold in 06, so totally understand. Yeah, and what people wanted when we looked at the focus groups back then was just somebody who could turn the lights on in the state house, and they would say, give me an old shoe. I just want an old shoe. Literally in the focus groups, the women would talk that way. And so I just had this eerie sense that the country was in the same place after Trump, that there was enough people who just wanted a calm, centered guy who could turn on the lights in the Oval Office and make government work. And I think that's what the Democratic Party wanted. We've got a lot of factions, and the factions made their moves. But in the end, I always thought the party would come to Biden. And no one understands how close we came, all of us came, to Trump and his authoritarian Trumpism. 44,000 votes in three states, I think it is, when you get down to it. We barely held on to the House. And frankly, had we lost the presidency, I'm not sure we would have won Georgia, the Georgia Senate seat. I mean, had Trump still had won and, you know. Well, and I would way. be a refugee in Canada at this point. A so. lot of us would be. <laughs> I think what happened, too, was people started to really focus on the stakes. They, you know, they may have wanted Bernie more. I mean, people who wanted Bernie more, but realized, you know what? No, we could lose this thing if we did that. And this isn't a normal election. The stakes are too high. Same reasons you guys may have gotten involved. You know, same thing. Everybody knew how important this was. Well, no, I mean, yeah, I mean, from our perspective, we'd all, in our own ways, we'd all left, whether it was officially or unofficially, we'd all left the party after, you know, Trump was going to be the presumptive nominee or was the nominee or was elected, whatever it was. I mean, I was never a very good Republican to begin with, even though I grew up in it. I mean, I grew up on the Hill with my dad and, you know, so I was an operatives kid. So I, I always saw it from the sort of, you know, sausage making business end of things rather than the activist wing of things. But I mean, I think also, you know, probably, you know, going back to what it takes, you saw what happened to him in 88. And obviously, they document the personal tragedy. He'd had subsequent personal tragedy after that campaign. And I really do believe this. Everybody's going to have their moment. And it's the question is whether or not they're available and ready to meet it. And I think he was. But let me ask you this. One thing that I've been noticing, and, and Matt By wrote a column about this in the Washington Post a couple of days ago, was that it seems now that, you know, Trump was our perpetual outrage machine. He was both the fuel for it and the igniter for it. But now he's gone. But it seems like we sort of can't quit the perpetual outrage. We're sort of looking for that constant adrenaline or that dopamine rush that we got used to. And I think everybody's got some responsibility, whether or not there's some Democrats that do it, certainly a lot of Republicans and conservatives and the Fox News of the world. And then I think the media's got some responsibility to it, too, because, you know, their numbers were through the roof, clicks were through the roof, coverage was through the roof, revenue was through the roof. And now, to your point, we have, I say this with all the love in the world, a, a well-worn but very durable shoe who gets put on every day and goes to work. And it seems like the world is sort of like, but I like the chaos a little bit. Well, I think it's not just that we like it, we're addicted to it. And by the way, if I'm really out there and outrageous and I only have a million Americans who will fall for it, that's a lot of money, a lot of books or a lot of donations. That's what's going to get the clicks to get me the donations. I mean, that was the one thing, well, two things about Doug Jones when I did that race. The first one was, look, no one had run in Alabama in 25 years. No one else would have gotten on the plane and gone to see him in May and tried to talk him into running because that was crazy talk. That's me. <laughs> okay. That's what, but I thought I saw a way that the circumstances were lining up where he could do it and he got in. 
But the other side of that was knowing full well, particularly this last cycle, 2020, that if you're not, and he isn't, a guy who's just going to hit hot buttons left and right to attract left-wing dollars, I mean, it's just not who he is. He really meant the common ground stuff. In fact, he insisted that if he did run the first time in 2017, that it had to be a campaign that sought common ground to try to bring the polarized sides together. And he did. He ran that way. But it was really hard to get people interested. He was common ground, but the world was polarizing and people would give to the more polarizing Democrat somewhere else or Republican against us. You can't get attention saying, let's all get along right? <laughs> in this world right now. And that's, a, I think, a really sad thing. I think we're losing even some of the Republicans that we're losing in the Senate right now. I mean, I relish like to pick up the seat as a Democrat, but we're getting rid of the people like Doug Jones in the Republican Party, too, that actually are in the middle and actually do try to cross the aisle to get things done and can listen to each other, can have a conversation like you and I can right now. Where we are as a country right now, it's hard to sustain those kind of candidacies. And that's what I really want to try to figure out in the next cycle, 22 and 24, is how we avoid doing more of that and get the right people in. Right. Well, I mean, Doug Jones was also the right Democrat for Alabama. Yeah. Um, but, you know, in that race, too, remember that it was these are the games of small numbers very often, right? Roy Moore could have been a U.S. senator, and it oh, wouldn't yeah. have been that big a surprise. Yeah, it was um, 20, we won by 23,000 votes. <laughs> that was it. Right. And I know you also worked for Mike Espy in Mississippi. You know, again, it doesn't look like you're, you're certainly not afraid to go into, I use long shot not as a pejorative, but as a compliment. Folks who might not otherwise, you know, have an opportunity. But, you know, Espy ran a good race. And so now you see, you know, they've got, was that Cindy Hyde-Smith, who, you know, she's a, at best, on her best day, a Confederate sympathizer. You got Tommy Tuberville in Alabama, whose claim to fame was being a football coach, but doesn't understand the three branches of government. The performative nature of politics is really the only thing that matters anymore. As you've probably been around long enough, there was a long time in the U.S. House, like when I was growing up, that if there was a Matt Gates or a Marjorie Taylor Greene, like Bob Michael would have told those people, sit in the cloakroom until I tell you to come out and vote. <laughs> right. They never would yeah. have been allowed yeah. behind a microphone. Well, that's actually one of the things that's happened, I think, is it's the cult of personality now at every level. I mean, for Congress, for anything. And so which is why it was so easy for Trump to take over the party. You know, Trump is the party. And literally, that's what the platform said last year. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> whatever he says, we believe it. Yeah. You know, and that's something else that Biden didn't do and isn't doing. It's the whole party. It's Kamala. It's everybody that he's appointing and. You know, I think the most important thing that's happened is the temperature has been lowered. And so when his lowering of the temperature, can we find some way to get people to understand that this polarization does not end well if we keep it up? Sure. And I mean, that's that's one thing that has frustrated me is, you know, you saw last week, I think before last weekend, there was a I think the AP ran a story about the fact that Biden spent three of his eight weekends in office in, you know, Delaware at his house. The Times wrote a story about how you know, he's got a Peloton. You know, the dog biting the agent is a three-day news story. And I'm sort of like, come on, guys. Like, I understand, like, you're bored, but isn't this the time when you start to go, like, dig through agencies again and, and find out something interesting about what's going on? It can't all just be about his home life because that's not who Biden is, right? His family doesn't work there. Is someone who, you know, has spent enough time at the White House to know this. It's frankly a hell of a lot less people required to stay at his house in Delaware than it is for him to stay either at Camp David or the White House for the weekend. It just seems to be one of those things where they're just looking for something 
to sort of get folks riled up. Well, they can't count the days he's been golfing, you know? So <laughs> Does he gotta, even golf? Gotta, I don't no, even know if he golfs. That's what I'm saying. It's like, <laughs> I was like looking at these stories about, yeah, he loves living in the White House, except on the weekends. Like, you know, like, you know, and it was like, yeah, well, you're just pissed he's not golfing. But I just think that 2022 is going to be, in a lot of ways, maybe more important than what we thought we were fighting in 2020. The results of those races and Trump's involvement, he's not going to go away, is going to really matter. Well, I mean, look, the two races I'm looking at right now, probably everybody are, as far as Senate races, are the Missouri Senate race and the Ohio Senate race. The Missouri Senate race, you know, it's going to have their sitting attorney general who's a two-time seditionist, you know, a former disgraced governor who's a, you know, if you ask any Navy SEAL who served, they don't claim the guy. And then he had all this stuff with the woman in his basement that ran him out of office. And then two like hardcore MAGA seditionist members of Congress, all of whom will be doing everything they can to get Trump and Josh Hawley's support. Right. I assume yeah. Roy Blunt's support. But frankly, Roy Blunt's support in a Republican primary in this Missouri is probably not that helpful. And then you've got, you know, this guy, J.D. Vance, who wrote Hillbilly Elegy, which when I read it, I thought was a terrific book. I grew up in I was born in southeastern Ohio, so I can relate to a lot of what he was talking about. You know, and you've seen that Peter Thiel and the Mercers are 10 million bucks put in for 10 million bucks. And that's a signal to me as someone who knows who those people are that like these are people not interested in like good governance. (laughs) Yeah, right. Exactly. That's not what they're there for. It's not what they're doing. And I think the map is much worse for McConnell in 22 than it was in 20, but I don't think we should take any, obviously never take anything for granted, but we don't live in a vacuum. So how do Democrats, if the Missouri Senate primary and the Ohio Senate primary get as cuckoo as they possibly could, how do the Democrats position themselves and their candidates to take advantage of that? I mean, you've got a Sherrod Brown in Ohio who's certainly, he's no shrinking violet and he's no moderate. Right. And he's consistently won. So how do Democrats find a way to win? Because from our perspective, I mean, we're not a Democratic organization. You know, we're more of a pro-democracy organization. We only got one pro-democracy party left. So from our perspective, it's not just about electing the Democrat, but keeping these people out. Because, you know, when the Sedition Caucus isn't seven or eight, but now it's 15 or 20, you got problems. What I'm seeing is that there really are Republicans that when they see a situation like the ones you're describing in Ohio and Missouri, it's really is the Democrat, you know, that I can live with, but we have to see who we nominate. You know, having worked for Kennedy in 80, I became a little more pragmatic. You know, like I'm a progressive, but, you know, we need to understand we're not going to elect uh, AOC in Idaho, right? It's not going to happen. So the real question is, can the party grow up enough to understand, like it did, by the way, with Biden? They, I think, realized the stakes were so high that they became comfortable with Biden and did not fight to the end like Bernie did against uh, Hillary in 2016. So that's one. The second thing is, I think this is not just going to happen in these two states. I think if you look at North Carolina, does Laura Trump run? There are some really good candidates in North Carolina on the Democratic side. who It may be a tough primary, but you know, I've never been one to think tough primaries actually hurt the nominee. It's, it, like you said with Bush, you get knocked down a little and you, it may be better for it in the general election. Well, know, and, and not only that, I mean, the, the as you know, you have this fairly narrow band of people on either the Republican or the Democratic side who are actually paying attention at any given moment in the primary. And then it sort of just balloons out into the general electorate. You know, if more of those people participated in primaries, we probably wouldn't be where we are today. I'm feeling pretty good about our prospects in the Senate. The Republicans writ large, I mean, I'm talking about the Hollies and those guys, they're going to find candidates in all these states. If Blunt was in, he'd be being primaried. As would Toomey and Portman and all of them. Right, all of them. They're getting rid of those guys for 
Trump craziness. I think that means the Democrats have a real shot if we find the right candidates and, and nominate people who can actually reach across. The Doug Joneses of the world, more of those we win. And I think that's going to happen in enough places that we, I feel like we can gain some ground in the Senate. What I really am worried about is the House because Democrats only, only have it by three votes right now with reapportionment with some of these legislatures <laughs> and as trumped up as many of them are where they're passing the, you know, the voter suppression laws. You know, you look at the reality that we probably start off down 10 seats just on the partisan redrawing, you know, in the reapportionment year. So I think for the sake of the country, I'm really hoping we that Biden has four years of maybe this, maybe 50-50, you know, but four years where he has a chance. And I think the second we lose the House, you're going to see that Jim Jordan's, I mean, in the, uh, the Nunes and the Gates is just really put sand in the gears and nothing will happen, which would be the same thing probably if we lose to the Hollies in a couple of places in the Senate. Somebody said the other day, you know, if the Republicans were to retake the House and you've got Speaker Kevin McCarthy, you know, they'd impeach Joe Biden. And they said they wouldn't impeach Joe Biden. They'd impeach Kamala Harris. That's a lot more useful to their efforts. Yeah, um, absolutely. Than Joe Biden. And, you know, maybe Liz Cheney and the 10 or 11, you know, non-insane Republicans would stand up against it and it wouldn't get through. But we should see it as, you know, to them, it's a zero sum game and they're going to do whatever it is they can. To your point, throw sand in the gears, just make it as ugly a process as possible. Because here's the other part, too. I never thought that Trump could win a high turnout election 2020. And he didn't. My mistake was that he was going to get so many goddamn votes like he did. Right. I mean, that was the thing that surprised me. I mean, it's one thing if he'd gotten you know, a few more votes than he got last time. But the fact that he got 75 million scared the hell out of me. And so the margins on this are pretty thin and they're just going to continue to be. But let me ask you one question. I mean, up until I was a freshman in college, right? I mean, Democrats owned the House and typically owned the Senate. You know, maybe they'd, they'd lose it for a couple, you know, the Senate a couple years here and there. Is there any such thing as a durable majority in this country anymore? No. Because of the demographics and the Electoral College and the way the Senate is divvied up, you know, California gets two senators, Idaho gets two senators. You really look at how the states end up, there's really no way either party can get anywhere near a real durable majority in the Senate. And, you know, maybe over time, as the South demographics in the South-Southwest start to move and keep moving the way they have been, but interestingly enough, I mean, the demographics in places like Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan, they may not hold up for a Democrat. So I just don't see that happening. And then I think until particularly now that the lines that are going to be redrawn are going to be predominantly redrawn by Republican legislatures and not what I would consider the Republican Party I knew. Right. That's the Trump Party. Trump Party. T. Those lines are going to be for 10 years, man, for 10 years. And we hold place by three seats now. So they'll be drawing, you know, making new safe seats for even crazier Republicans. And driving people to sue. Say, fine, take it to federal court. We'll see what happens. And yeah, take it to court and we'll see after the election's over. And you, right. You know, uh, that'll be the same thing with the voter suppression stuff and things like that. You know, there'll be suits back and forth. But I just think in the end that we're at this pivotal moment where if we don't hold on to the, I'm just talking as a Democrat, actually as an American, if we don't hold on to the Senate and the House, I just think that we're in for the bonkers polarization, just hockey sticking off because then 
who knows whether Trump decides to go in 2024, what game that gets played, but it won't be good for the country. We've got two years to come together as Americans and build some sense of common citizenship, if that's possible anymore. To your point, I mean, we had this thing going back over a year, back to January of 2020, when Steve Bannon said, talking about the Lincoln Project, if these guys can move four to six percent of establishment voters, Trump's in a lot of trouble. We called that the Bannon line. That was the only thing we were shooting for. Soft Republicans, conservative independents, mostly white college educated in the suburbs. I mean, that was our target demo. You know, we got a lot more attention for the stuff we did just whacking the hell out of Trump. But we did actually have a strategy and a political plan for those voters that we executed against. But I think you're right. I mean, we were able to convince those folks, A, that Trump was not an okay choice, but B, that Biden was. But now we got to do it again. And we got to do it in a lot different places, you know, in a lot more places. I mean, maybe the first two years is a referendum on Biden. But as you know, too, he's also fighting this sort of first midterm curse that most presidents suffer. Now, you know, given we're less than 100 days in, he's had a pretty good run. But as you know, too, if there's anything less predictable than a presidential campaign, it's a presidency. It's not just the usual problem a president has in the first midterm. It's, you know, I think only W was the only person to gain seats. And that was after 9-11. Right. In 02. And then it had, I think it had gone back since before FDR or something. Right. So once every 80 years. Yeah. So it's a predicament more of how tight the house is right now by three and what the stakes are again, because we've had, um, do you remember Jim Jeffords? who switched parties. The last time the Senate was like a 50-50 place, and he literally changed the majority in the Senate by switching to become a Democrat. I think it was the same period. Yeah, 2001, Bush's first year, pre-9-11. Yeah, but what I'm saying is that it's unbelievable that was how big the difference in the eras are when, yeah, we had this 50-50 division, but things actually got done. People actually worked across lines. Kennedy, et cetera, were able to work with McCain and others and get real things done. Right. Well, remember that Bush's first big win was No Child Left Behind, massive education overhaul that he partnered with Teddy Kennedy on. Yeah, exactly. That's like 19 years ago, but it is ancient history, right? It doesn't work that way anymore. Somehow we got to get back there. Well, listen, I hope we can lock arms and march forward together on that. So, Joe, I know you've got a podcast. Tell us a little bit more about your show. I know you've got a new episode dropping on Friday. Yeah, it's called That Trippy Show, and you can get it wherever you get your podcasts. You know, I try not to get so caught up in what the, you know, usual current event of uh, screaming matches at the moment and more talk about selected races, what I think I would do as a manager in the race or, you know, if I was in it. So it's more a political show from the perspective of somebody who's been doing this for over 40 years. I used to say, Boyle, 40 years of experience into 30 minutes is sort of the whole notion of the show. And also a big dollop of, we got to find some common ground, work with Republicans uh, and work together to get through this polarization that we're in. And so, yeah, appreciate if your listeners uh, give the podcast a listen. Uh, absolutely. I think they may enjoy it. Yeah, so absolutely. So check out the, the wit and wisdom of Joe Trippy on That Trippy Show. And Joe, where can we find you online? Best places on Twitter at Joe Trippy. At Joe Tripp. All right. And uh, for the Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. You can find me on Twitter at Reed Galen. And once again, to everybody, uh, thanks for joining me. Joe, I hope you'll come back before the 22 midterms and you can help us pick apart some of these races and, uh, and give us your brain power on what it looks like. Reed, seriously, it's good to be with you and I uh, look forward to coming back. 
And to everyone out there, thanks for listening, and we will see you next time. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter, at Project Lincoln, and for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list and subscribe to our newsletter, visit lincolnproject.us. Also, be sure to check out our LPTV lineup, including The Breakdown with Tara Setmayer and Rick Wilson, which airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 9 p.m. Eastern, as well as We're Speaking with Lisa Sinical and Maya May, which airs Wednesdays at 9 p.m. Eastern. All shows you can stream live on The Lincoln Project's YouTube, Facebook, or Twitter feeds. For The Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. See you on the next episode. Thank you.